Welcome to CMI-TV's Time for Biblical Q&A. In this video series, Dr. Robert Congdon, Director of Congdon Ministries International, will offer biblical answers to the questions you send him via email. Questions may be sent to questions at congdonministries.org. Dr. Congdon will answer each question by applying the Biblicist method of Bible study. This means that his answers will be based upon a literal, historical, and grammatical interpretation of the scriptures. Where appropriate, he will explain why the Biblicist's approach to Bible interpretation offers a more accurate answer to questions than the Reformed or Calvinist approach that is being applied and widely propagated by many in churches today. Here is a question submitted by a viewer. If God knows everything, if he knows us and what we do and think, if he knows what we need before we ask, why should we pray to him? Aren't we just bothering him with incidentals? Thank you. And now, Dr. Congdon's response. Thank you for that excellent question. At some time in life, I'm sure each one of us have asked these questions about prayer. You see, of course we know that God knows everything, that he is everywhere, He's all-powerful, and he is sovereign over his creation. He knows the future, and he knows what our needs are, even before we ask him. In fact, he knows everything about us. That means that when you comb your hair in the morning and some hairs fall off your head, the record books in heaven must be changed, because God the Father knows the very hairs of your head are all numbered, according to Matthew 10.30. So why indeed should we pray? Well, certainly there are many benefits of prayer and a solid prayer life, and much has been written about the need to pray. But one reason to pray is often ignored, not mentioned, not understood, or just plain not known by most people. It is that reason that I want us to study today to look at prayer for it is one of the prime reasons, if not the very prime reason, God has us pray. You see, for the Christian, prayer is vital to our future life with our Lord. Its aspect is far-reaching into our life in the future as we live it with our Lord. Now, as I have studied prayer over many years, I have come to realize that prayer is really more than just fellowship with God. That prayer is really more than praying because he tells us to. It's more than just getting God's attention. If prayer is really significant to our future life with the Lord, and I believe it is, we need to understand what that prime purpose is. In this video, I would like to focus in on the prime purpose of prayer. I believe it is the most important and most urgent reason for us to pray. That is, our prayer life is on-the-job training to prepare us for our life as the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ in his coming millennial kingdom. Again, I'll repeat that. Our prayer life is on-the-job training that is preparing us 
to live our life with the Lord on into the millennial kingdom and throughout eternity. In order to grasp this truth and its importance, we need to look at three aspects of our on-the-job training for our millennial future. The first aspect of our on-the-job training in preparing us to serve with Christ in the millennium is to understand the future kingdom of Jesus Christ. As I taught in my video series on the Mount of Olives, Matthew gives two prime reasons for writing his book. The first reason is to present Jesus of Nazareth as the one whom Moses and the prophets spoke of as the Messiah, the long-awaited one, Emmanuel, God with us. For Matthew 1, 21-23 says, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done, that might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Now Matthew's second prime reason is to present Jesus of Nazareth as the king of the greatest earthly kingdom this world will ever see, the kingdom of heaven. If we look at Matthew 2, verses 1 and 2, we read, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. Now, central to these two prime purposes is Matthew's use of the phrase kingdom of heaven. Or as shown in my video on the Olivet Discourse, the phrase is better translated the kingdom from heaven. Or alternatively, in other uses by Matthew, it would be the kingdom from God. For Matthew uses the term kingdom from heaven 31 of its 65 uses in the New Testament. And specifically, eight of his uses of those times are in the Sermon on the Mount of chapters 5, 6, and 7. In verse 1 of chapter 5, Matthew states, His disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Then begins an extensive teaching by Jesus Christ to his disciples of the kingdom, beginning with verse 3. Our Lord describes the basic spiritual character and qualities of his coming kingdom. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of or from heaven. In chapter 6, still part of the Sermon on the Mount, in verse 9, Jesus Christ links prayer to his kingdom. He says, After this manner, therefore, pray ye, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. In this prayer, two petitions are noted. The first petition refers to the timing of the kingdom, and the second petition refers to the atmosphere of the kingdom. Clearly, the timing of the kingdom is yet future. It's thy kingdom come. 
By studying this and other passages in the Bible, students have determined that there are three possibilities as to when the time will be for the kingdom. Determining which of these three views is the biblical truth is going to be dependent upon how one studies the passages, in other words, their hermeneutic or their method of study. Uh, one group, for example, are those who interpret prophecy from an allegorical approach. Rather than being consistent throughout the scriptures interpreting it in the same method of studying or hermeneutic, they switch with prophecy to allegorical. The allegorical study sees the kingdom as a spiritual, non-visible kingdom that begins at Pentecost of Acts 2 and continues until Christ ends history and creates a new heaven and earth. A different group called Biblicists are those who interpret prophecy in the same way as they interpret the rest of Scripture. They are consistent as they move through Scripture in their method of study or hermeneutic. They take all references to the kingdom in a literal or a normal, natural sense. The grammatical is considered and the historic is considered in their interpretation. By a careful comparison of Isaiah, Daniel, Revelation, and other prophetical books, they believe the kingdom begins when Jesus Christ returns to the earth at his second coming and begins the thousand-year millennial kingdom on earth. There's a third group that really mixes the two, and it's a compromise view of these two other views. It sees a spiritual kingdom now, but a literal or physical kingdom in the future. Since this last view is a compromise and is typical of compromise, it rarely will reflect the exactness of Scripture. Any compromise results in a lack of exactness of the Scriptures. We're going to reject it and consider the first two views. Now, I believe the spiritual kingdom view fails for three reasons. First of all, it requires two systems of interpreting Scripture, depending on where you are in the Bible, which system you use. Consequently, it makes it easy for a reader to put in his own views rather than the Scripture's straightforward teaching. Secondly, it ignores many of the prophetical, physical descriptions of a kingdom that are clearly related to a visible, earthly kingdom. Uh, examples are distance measurements, uh, geographic features, and many other specifics of a physical nature that could only fit on the earth. Thirdly, is the grammar associated with the word come in Matthew's text. Thy kingdom come. The word come is the verb. It is in the aorist imperative. Now, don't worry about the grammar. Just understand what that means. That means that it is a single, punctilinear action, a one-time event, representing, if you will, in terms of an ongoing series of history events, it's a single point in time, not an ongoing kingdom. Typically, the spiritual, allegorical, non-visible kingdom teaching requires this ongoing building or enlarging of the kingdom's population or a gradual conquering of society with the gospel over time. 
Now, this view is certainly not a single point-in-time view, which the aorist imperative would require in the word come, and is contrary to that grammar, that grammar that God chose and put in the scriptures. Therefore, I believe the timing of the kingdom is yet future. It will come into being with the singular point-in-time second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth to be the king of Israel and the earth, seated upon David's throne in a literal Jerusalem. Having considered the first petition that the kingdom come, we're now going to look at the second petition of the prayer of Matthew 6, the atmosphere of the kingdom. We note that at this kingdom, the atmosphere will be one in which God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This kingdom is unique in that throughout its land, God's will is done on earth just as it is done in heaven. This is certainly not true today, for many reject God. They rebel against him and his laws, and they live immoral lives sometimes claiming even that they are God's representative as they lead these kind of lives that are really in rebellion to God's word. The literal, normal view of a millennial kingdom, though, says that Jesus Christ will be the king, and further, it stresses that he will rule with a rod of iron, beginning with his second coming to the earth. The citizens now of the millennium, at the start, that's the tribulation ends and the millennium begins, these citizens will be righteous beings that are alive at the end of the tribulation, and they will continue their lives upon the earth in this new kingdom, living under God's rule and will. The governing body of the kingdom will carry out God's will as representatives of the king. That governing body will include the bride of Christ, the church, as described by Paul in Ephesians. It will also include Old Testament saints. Yes, you did hear me right. I said we, the church age saints, those who are saved from Acts chapter 2 through to the rapture, we will govern with Jesus Christ, our bridegroom. This is a position of great responsibility, requiring special skills, a strong knowledge of our Lord's will, and a close fellowship with him. Therefore, we are part of God's system of rule that makes the earth as it is in heaven during this kingdom. Thus, the atmosphere will be an atmosphere of God's will upon earth. Hence, the first aspect of our on-the-job training in preparing us to serve with Christ in the millennium is this correct understanding of the coming future kingdom of Christ upon the earth. After we recognize the future kingdom of Jesus Christ upon the earth, where God's will will be done as it is in heaven, we must next understand our involvement in that millennial kingdom. Thus, the second aspect of our on-the-job training in preparing us to serve with Christ in the millennium is to understand our position within that kingdom. Sadly, that future position is either misunderstood by many or even sadder, is that many never have been taught what it will be. 
Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 23 to 27 to begin to understand our future role. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Ephesians 5, 23-27 Notice carefully the comparison or illustration of our future role in the millennium. The picture is of marriage between a man and a woman. God created the idea of marriage as a means of filling the earth and governing the earth according to the book of Genesis. But never miss the other important aspect of marriage. It is to give us a picture of our relationship to Jesus Christ in the millennium and throughout eternity. Thus we are the future bride of Christ, we, the church-age saints, those who are saved between the time of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, until the catching up of the church just prior to the tribulation. It appears that following the catching up of the church-age saints, we'll be married in heaven and we are the bride of the Lord's marriage supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb, which we see in Revelation 19, looking at verses 6 through 8. Revelation 19, 6 through 8. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the voice of many waters, as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. God's description of the bride is very similar to that that we find in Ephesians chapter 5, in verse 27, where we read that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Think about this. For reasons known only to God, God has separated a group of people to have a unique relationship with his son, similar to marriage in function and purpose. Since God has spent almost 2,000 years gathering the bride, the purpose must be significant. Now careful now, the church-age saints are not more worthy than those of the Old Testament. Rather, in God's grace, they are given a different task and relationship. Now Israel is still God's beloved nation and spoken of as God the Father's wife. Hosea 2 verses 16 through 20. Never forget this. God's wife, Israel, is still just as important to him today as it has always been. For we read in Zechariah 2 8, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, after the glory hath sent me unto the nations which spoiled you, 
For he that toucheth you, that's Israel, toucheth the apple of his eye. And then in Leviticus 26:44, E yet for all that, when they be in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, neither will I abhor them, to destroy them utterly, and to break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. We must never forget that God's love for Israel and his people is unconditional. It will continue as long as the stars are in the heaven, as we are told in Jeremiah 31, verses 35 to 37. Now, back to us, the bride of Christ. Today, we are the engaged bride to Jesus Christ, God's Son. God continues the picture of us as this bride in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. There God says, According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. As the bride, the church, if you know the Lord is your Savior, you are now engaged in waiting for the bridegroom's coming so that we can be taken to heaven to the wedding. During this time, the Lord Jesus Christ is in heaven preparing for his bride, the church. We're told in John 14, verse 2, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there may ye be also. Notice carefully, once he comes back for us at the catching up of the church, the rapture, we will be with him forever. Now, we as the engaged bride must also be preparing for that day. As with any wedding, there is much preparation for both parties. We, the bride, must prepare just as any earthly bride would. Remember, Revelation 19.7 says, The bride prepared herself. Of course, the parallel to an engaged bride's preparation is not totally the same. An earthly bride needs to learn house management skills, cooking skills, sewing skills, decorating skills, managing skills, etc., we, as the Bride of Christ, also need to prepare and develop our spiritual skills for the millennium and into eternity. You may never have thought of this before, but it's very important to consider what it means to prepare. Have you seen those signs on the highways that say, Prepare to meet your God? Obviously, these are speaking of eternal salvation from our sins. But there could also be a sign saying, Prepare to carry out your godly duties in the millennium. You might ask, why is there a need for such urgent and intensive preparation and training? The answer is very simple. We, the bride, are to be married to royalty. Remember, Jesus Christ is to rule as King of Kings and Lord of Lords in the millennium. According to Isaiah 33, 17, verse 22, Isaiah 44, 6, we also find in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, Daniel 7, 15 to 28. Also, Obadiah refers to it, Micah, Zephaniah, Zechariah, to name just a few of the many references. Therefore, remember, we, his bride, will be the royal queen. We will co-reign with her husband. 
we read in Revelation 20, verse 6, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. They shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. That's speaking of us. Now, God will not automatically equip you and make you ready. Oh yes, the Lord is interceding in heaven for us, but we still must do our part to prepare. Remember Paul's final words to his protege Timothy and to the church in 2 Timothy 2, verse 12. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. John the Apostle echoes this concept of reigning with him in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 10. And hast made us unto God kings and priests, we shall reign on the earth. Notice the scriptures, understood in the simplest sense, speaks of a literal thousand years. And notice this will be on the earth. This is taking it in the literal aspect of biblical interpretation. Now, with high position and nobility comes great responsibility. Are you preparing now? Are you learning about God's will as it is in heaven right now? Are you preparing to do it on earth as it is in heaven? Are you preparing to rule and reign with your husband? You may ask, how do I do this? This is where the third aspect of prayers on-the-job training coming in, because it will teach us how to be the bride of Christ that does Christ's will. The third aspect of on-the-job training is that we need to learn how to do our bridegroom's will. Part of serving our Lord in the millennium is the role as a co-regent, as his bride. As such, it's critical that we know his will and carry out that will. I have stressed Revelation chapter 20 and verse 6, where our two prime tasks are noted. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. They shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him, that's with Christ, a thousand years. Perhaps our role will be similar to that used by Moses in the wilderness as he ruled over Israel. In Exodus 18, verse 25, we read, And Moses chose able men out of all Israel, and made them heads over the people, ruler of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of ten. And they judged the people at all seasons, the hard or difficult causes or cases they brought unto Moses, but every small matter they judged themselves. We do know that in the millennium, Ezekiel in chapter 44 identifies the millennial priesthood as having two key functions. Now, while this passage is specifically applied to the priesthood of Zadok during the millennium, the functions may be similar for church-age resurrected saints during the same period of time in the millennium. In Ezekiel 44, verses 23 and 24, the two millennial priestly duties are delineated. We read, And they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and profane, and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. And in controversy they shall stand in judgment, 
they shall judge it according to my judgments, and they shall keep my laws and my statutes in all mine assemblies, and they shall hallow my Sabbaths. Therefore, it is likely that we, Christ's bride, will deal with the small matters of judgment, and we will bring only the great matters to the Lord as necessary. Key to this idea is that we must know how our Lord thinks and his statutes and principles in order to apply them correctly if we are to govern. That knowledge comes from knowing our Lord and growing in his grace and knowledge, 2 Peter 3.18. We do this through studying his word, the Bible, by learning through our fellowship with him. Now, just as any wife knows her husband's thinking more with each year of marriage, our relationship with our Lord builds based upon the time we spend with him and listening to him after we first receive him as our Savior and continue to grow and mature spiritually in our life with him. In a very real sense, our prayer life is one of the means of accomplishing this growth and knowledge of his will and his purposes. Paul alludes to this when he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Some have thought or taught that when they're glorified, they instantly will be given all knowledge and know everything, fully ready to do anything the Lord asks. But this doesn't seem to be the case. If we base it upon the Lord's teaching concerning the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, verses 14 and 30 through 30. There, the Bible clearly teaches us that in our present life, we need to study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2.15. Any workman needs training, and the more they learn, the more they are able to do the work. The more they are able to do the work, the greater the talents they can exercise, and then the Lord can reward them with greater responsibility in the millennium. Further, Revelation 19, verse 17, indicated that we, the bride of Christ, must learn this before the rapture and tribulation. Remember this familiar verse now. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. Unfortunately, today's Christian typically is weak spiritually and is doing little to become equipped for service in the millennium and into eternity. A specific area of weakness is the prayer life of many Christians, also including many churches, it is my contention that through our prayer life, we can better know our Lord and specifically better understand his will. In learning his will for our life and others through our prayer requests and his answers, we will grow in our understanding of our Lord, our bridegroom. Since we will be judging and ruling in a way to reflect his will and statutes, we can combine both using the principle of basing our requests upon biblical Precedence. Just as in the law field, precedence is crucial. Lawyers win their cases not on their personality, but upon a previous case precedent. If, 
we want to pray in God's will, we should look for biblical precedents. We should then quote those biblical precedents to show that what we are asking is truly in his will. Doing this forces us to study the scriptures and learn God about God's previous actions with respect to his will. Cite either a verse or an incident in the Bible that shows that what you are asking for, God has already answered in the past in history. You can apply his principles of answering there to your life and your situation today. For example, Paul gives us a precedent for praying concerning those who govern in our lives today. In 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, we read, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercession, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority. We have a biblical precedence for praying for fellow Christians that they may not commit evil. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 7 says, Now I pray to God that ye do no evil, but that ye should do that which is honest. Another biblical precedence this one praying for the Jewish people and their salvation, Romans 10.1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Now you're probably thinking, this is hard work to think or search for biblical precedents for my prayer request. <laughs> yes, it is. But remember, you are preparing for royalty. Remember, we are supposed to hallowed God's name and learn his will. Should we pray for this? Is there any biblical precedence for that? <laughs> Colossians 4.12 Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, in order that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Obviously, knowing God's will is important to ruling and judging in the millennium. But remember, God is not just speaking of the old college try, or in Britain we used to hear the term, give it your best shot. No, God is serious about our ultimate perfection. We are to be his son's bride and co-regent. This is a great responsibility that does require great preparation. Is it worth it? Here's what God says is the outcome of this effort care, and preparation. 1 John 3, verse 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children or sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. It doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now we know that when Christ returns to the earth as King of kings and Lord of lords, we shall be like him. This means that when asked if something is holy or godly, we'll be able to give the very same answer as Christ would. For example, some years ago I was speaking at a church, and a woman came up to my wife and said, I know your husband is quite busy with many people. May I ask you a question, and would you give me your husband's answer? My wife said yes, and answered her question. A little later, the woman came up to me and asked me the same question. 
When I gave my answer, she said, Why, that's the same answer your wife gave. She acted as if that was unusual. Actually, my wife and I know each other so well, we know what the other would say in a given situation. So, too, with our bridegroom, Christ. We should know his words given in the Bible, we should know him personally, and we should know how he would respond in a given situation. How do we give the same answers as Christ? First, we are to be reading our Bibles regularly, consistently. Not just for what we get out of it, but to come to an understanding of God's personality, God's thinking, and how he would respond in various issues. As we see how he acts in given situations, we can come to an understanding of God and his will. Second, prayer. We need to see God's answers and will in our own personal prayer life. As we meditate upon those answers he gives in response to our prayers, we learn what is and what is not God's will. When he answers no, we know that certainly wasn't his will, what we had asked for. We should note its reason, try to understand its reason, and add it to our understanding of his personality and his will. Now, when he says not now, we should try to understand the wisdom of the not now from him. James 1.5 says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. So now we have another reason to pray. We need to ask him why the answer was no if we don't understand it. And we need to ask him the question of why not now if we don't understand why it is not now. When he answers yes, we know that the answer is in his will. Now, while there may not always be answers immediately, there will always be answers because our bridegroom is preparing us. As our storehouse of information grows through our prayer life, if we're truly his, we learn now how we can better please him and more and more as a bride would please her husband. How does it work? Well, when we pray, we are doing on-the-job training. If you view your prayer as a means of learning about God's will, you're going to succeed. Think about the situation where boy meets girl. They first start talking and doing things together. As they learn each other's personalities and likes, they eventually fall in love, get engaged, and marry. Fifty years later, people remark how they now talk and look alike. Why? They spent 50 years learning to understand each other. In a similar way, when we are newly born as a Christian, we begin a life with Jesus Christ. We know little of him and very little of his personality and little of his will and the principles that we are to apply in our life. As we share experiences together, our knowledge of the Lord's love, his care, his discipline, and guidance grows. With time and effort, we learn to anticipate his will in those situations where the Bible doesn't clearly direct us. We need to anticipate his will as we co-rule in the millennium. But what does co-ruling entail? Looking back at Ezekiel 44, a very difficult passage teaches the roles of priests and kings in the millennial kingdom. 
Again, the church saints may not be the priesthood of Ezekiel 44, but our function in the millennium will be very similar. Thus, this passage can serve as an indicator of our role as co-regent. In Ezekiel 44, then, we read in verse 23 that those ruling shall teach my people the difference between the holy and profane and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. And in controversy, they shall stand in judgment. They shall judge it according to my judgments. Here's the bride's prime role in the millennium. It is to teach what is and what is not God's will. Further, when there is controversy, a decision will be required of the judges. That's you and me, the church saints. We can't go back running to our bridegroom for every answer. That would make us merely a messenger service, but that's not what the Bible teaches we are. It teaches that we are a co-regent. We are the bride of the king. Thus, we will give answers and judgments based on our bridegroom's will as we have learned it prior to the millennium. You say, oh, come on, I can't believe that. Really? Don't you know that we will have the mind of Christ then and be able to express that to our millennial citizens? 1 Corinthians 2, verse 16 says, For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct us, teach us, but we have the mind of Christ. This is a true co-regency. Time spent now in learning is equipping you to minister in the future. Therefore, from all eternity, all that precedes the marriage supper of the Lamb is preliminary and preparatory for that day. Only thereafter will God's program for the eternal ages begin to unfold. God will not be ready, so to speak, to enter upon his ultimate and supreme enterprise for the ages until the bride is on the throne with her divine love and Lord. Up until then, God is manipulating the entire universe under the sun's regulation and control for our purpose to prepare and train his bride. Truly, God is the Lord of history. Paul Bilheimer, a biblical student, wrote, Remember, we are in training. Study God's will by preparing for the kingdom as a bride prepares for her marriage. Pray to learn how God thinks. All may be summarized in Paul's words if we turn to Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. And we read there, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Work, you say, yes, this is work. But what a great privilege and responsibility it is to be the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. Next time you pray, remember you are on the job training as you pray. Why pray? To prepare to serve your Lord. Now until I see you either here or in the air, may our Lord bless you mightily as you prepare for his coming and for your future service to him. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. <laughs>